Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Marco De Maria, a dynamic young investigator who specializes in the study of cellular senescence, a process that has been implicated in multiple disease states and in aging itself. I would call Marco a rising star in the field, except that his star has already risen. Since starting his lab at the University of Groningen and the European Research Institute for the Biology of Aging, he has published prolifically on multiple aspects of senescence biology, and he was recently elected president of the International Cell Senescence Association, an organization devoted to promoting research, cooperation, and exchange of information in this exciting field. On a personal note, it's a particular pleasure to talk to Marco because he's a former colleague. We were postdocs together in the laboratory of Judith Campisi, one of the foremost leaders in the study of senescence and one of the most influential biologists of aging in the world. We're going to have a couple of other Campisi Lab alumni on the show in coming months as well. Marco, thanks for joining us. Hi, Chris. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Really nice to hear your voice, man. So let's warm up a bit with some definitions. For our listeners who are into the longevity space but may not be familiar with it, what is cellular senescence? Yeah, this is uh, uh, the most complicated question you can start with. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, well, we like to define senescence as a cellular state of stable and generally irreversible growth arrest. So a cell that essentially was originally able to grow and proliferate, but then it becomes unable to do so. However, there have been a lot of exceptions to this uh, paradigm in the last few years. So, of course, uh, the nomenclature is becoming a little bit more shaky. But together with this phenotype that is indeed of growth arrest, senescent cells are normally associated with a number of uh, morphological and structural changes that we can normally define as uh, hypersecretory and uh, with a metabolic uh, alteration that make them indeed somehow dangerous in some context and somehow beneficial in some others. Hypersecretory, that means they're secreting a lot of different factors. How can that be dangerous? The problem comes when this hypersecretory phenotype is somehow dysregulated. This can be because it becomes too prolonged and persistent, or it's activated in the wrong context. Okay, so what's the right context and what's the wrong context? There have been a number of, uh, let's say, recent studies, let's say in the last decade, that have shown that in the right context, a senescent cell is able to, first of all, mediate immunosurveillance. So trying to attract immune cells to uh, regulate uh, their response to certain type of stresses, for example, a damage or a pre-oncogenic lesion. On the other side, senescent cells have been associated with a positive regulation of tissue repair because of this hypersecretory status. I see. So sometimes senescent cells are kind of hanging out, monitoring the environment around them and telling the immune system, hey, this is something you might want to come check out. Am I getting that right? Correct. Correct. They are sort of uh, alarming the environment. So that helps us understand the good things that senescent cells can do. What are the bad things that senescent cells can do? And here I'd like to focus on how senescent cells can be related to aging and to disease processes. Yes, one of the problems that uh, is arising is that we've 
increased age in various organisms, including humans, senescent cells are not 100% efficiently eliminated. This means that they slowly but steadily accumulate in various tissues, and then that's where they become essentially dysregulated. So their presence is not really wanted, and their accumulation is indeed dysregulated. So essentially, they start to persist, they accumulate, and they continuously secrete these factors that initially were beneficial, but now they become potentially detrimental. So you have these messages that the senescent cells were sending to the immune system and to the tissue around them, and at first they were useful. But as these cells start to accumulate and they are present in higher and higher numbers as we age, those signals become counterproductive and can lead to tissue damage immune dysregulation, and all kinds of bad things. Yes, this is correct. And uh, it is important to say that, you know, senescence is a very dynamic process. A cell that is in an early senescent state seems to be different from a senescent cell in a late state. So also their phenotype and their hypersecretory phenotype might be switching from a beneficial to a detrimental function because of the composition of it. The composition of the response, that is to say the factors that they're secreting, changes over time? Correct. The composition of the secretory phenotype might change with time. So they start out as good citizens, but they end up as bad neighbors. At least this is one of the hypotheses, yes. Okay, and we'll entertain a lot of different hypotheses. I think that you pointed something out in response to the first question, which is that we used to think we had a pretty good handle on senescence. You know, cells get damaged or their telomeres grow short. They enter a state of permanent growth arrest so they don't become tumors, the end. (laughs) And then we found out that there was all this diversity in the way that cells enter senescence. There was all this diversity in the way that they behave once they become senescent, that there is a life cycle where early and late senescent cells are different, and there are beneficial effects of senescence. It's not just a passive defense against tumorigenesis, but there's actually a function in kind of the normal young body that senescent cells do. But it's their late life function that we really need to watch out for. And there's even more diversity. There's even more sort of controversies and issues of definitions in the field. And I know those are still being worked out. So taking that as read, this is complicated, which is good because it keeps us all in business. Which aspects of senescence are you most interested in your own research group? One aspect of senescence that I'm more interested in at the moment, and my love is as well, because I taught them to do so. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, because they're also interested in, in this, to solve this question. That is, what is the heterogeneity of senescence? Meaning, indeed, uh, you mentioned this positive and negative side of senescence, maybe this dynamic evolution of the senescence phenotype. But what are we looking at? Are we looking at different types of senescence cells, which have completely different origins? Or we are looking at, indeed, an evolution of a program throughout time. So my lab is trying to understand this point. It's trying to understand whether we are, indeed, facing a phenotype, senescence, which should be actually divided in many different subphenotypes. So different types of subtypes of senescent cells, different population of senescent cells, each with its own uh, properties and functions. Or we are looking simply at one phenomenon that essentially is highly dynamic and is influenced by the time, by the context in which it resides and it develops, which is a completely different, uh, of course, uh, hypothesis than the one that, you know, the cell would start from a different program at the beginning. I see. So you're asking the question, 
do we have different cell states or the same cell state at different times? Exactly. So where do you come down on this? Do you think it's the former, the latter, or ask me in two weeks? Uh, I will tell you, ask you in 20 years, seeing what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, uh, we don't have to be too religious on this in the sense that I think we should not just believe one or the other. It's probably a mix of the two. There might be uh, situations where, indeed, the senescence program develops differently, completely, and originates uh, different subtypes of senescent cells. But there might be also conditions in which the same senescent cell that started with one function develop a second function. So I think it's a mix of the two, essentially. I want to jump ahead a little bit. I mean, we're going to talk about the use of senolytic medications. And senolytic, for the listeners who don't know the term, are drugs that kill or eliminate senescent cells. There's an idea that to the extent that senescent cells drive age-related change, that senolytic drugs will help us treat or even prevent diseases of aging. So how does this question of heterogeneity bear on the strategy of using senolytic medications in the clinic? I think that that is a, one of the most important points at the moment in the development of senolytics. And the reason being that all the senolytics that we are somehow using now, both at the preclinical and at the clinical level, are repurposed drugs which have a very general effect on senescent cells and are not able at all to discriminate the different type of senescent cells that exist. And the next generation of senolytic drugs should definitely focus on dissecting the target that they want to reach because of the potential side effect of administering a general senolytic that could interfere with the beneficial senescence. So the next step is for sure to develop more tailored, more targeted senolytic interventions that are aiming to interfere with specific subtypes. So there's a loose analogy with the way that the oncology field has evolved, which we've gone from these very general drugs. I mean, not that there are any beneficial effects of cancer cells, so the analogy is a little strained, but old school cancer drugs like are extremely broad spectrum and hit any dividing cell. And then the subsequent generations, we've got more and more precise. We're able even to target cancer cells with specific mutations in them. And it sounds like you're describing a world in which as we understand the heterogeneity of senescence, we're able to target more and more precisely particular senescent cells and hopefully eliminate the bad ones or just the bad behavior while maintaining the positive or beneficial effects of other senescent cells in the body. Yes, exactly. That's exactly my point. And also, it is important to mention that what we call senolytic drugs and compounds are all repurposed drugs. So there are very few exceptions of drugs that have been developed on targeting selectively senescent cells because most of the senolytics that we indeed we call senolytics now are repurposed drugs, and most of them are actually anti-cancer drugs. So it's actually interesting that the analogy also goes on the drugs themselves, not only on the potential process of targeting selective uh, subpopulations of cells with specific mutations and traits. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't know that. Moving on to another research focus, your lab has made some intriguing discoveries related to hypoxia, which is the term for low oxygen levels, and how our cellular response to hypoxia can change the behavior of senescent cells. 
Could you tell us a little bit about those findings? Yes, essentially what we have found is that in a hypoxic environment, which means in a lower oxygen condition, a senescent cell develops some of the traits that characterize senescence, including the growth arrest and some other markers, but it does not really develop a full and strong hypersecretory phenotype. We have observed that also in tissues, both in mice and humans, the development of the cells seems to be proportional to the oxygen level of that tissue. Could you just quickly define the word SASP for our listeners? Oh, yeah, sorry. That's the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. So that's the hypersecretory phenotype that we have discussed until now. This is an interesting observation because on one side, we can think that tissues that are less exposed to oxygen would also develop less SASP. So potentially those tissues might age or have less problems because of senescence than others. But also that potentially these uh, low oxygen concentrations could be exploited therapeutically to lower the detrimental SASP that happen in hyperoxygenated tissues. And this can be achieved both by using indeed regulating oxygen itself, because it's possible to expose organisms to a you know, different level of oxygen, but also to maybe find uh, drugs that can be mimetics of, the, of these effects. How do you think that oxygen is influencing the SASP? The mechanism is uh, passing through another adaptation to low oxygen concentrations, and mainly to an adaptation to uh, metabolic disturbances, which is the activation of a kinase, a very important kinase, which is called AMP kinase. And the main property of AMPK or AMP kinase in our system is that it can suppress the activity of mTOR, which we all know being a nutrient-sensing protein, which is very important in aging, but is also very important in driving and pushing the SASP to high levels. So when you have activation of AMPK in epoxic environments, you suppress mTOR activity, and consequently, you suppress the high SASP that you would normally observe. So let's go back to something you were talking about earlier about the ramifications of this for how we target senescent cells in the context of treating disease. I mean, or even preventing aging. Should we all just hold our breath for two minutes a day? I mean, I thought that intermittent fasting was hard enough. Well, intermittent fasting to me is much harder than actually maybe, uh, you know, hold my breath for like uh, 30 seconds. No, actually there are ways that you can simply expose yourself to lower oxygen concentrations. You know, we are all used to see, I think, these hyperbaric chambers where uh, indeed you are just exposed to high oxygen, but you can also do the reverse. You cannot expose yourself to lower oxygen for only a few minutes. And actually there have been a number of studies now reported in the literature and people are voluntarily subjecting themselves to low oxygen concentrations. So my dream and my goal is to uh, try to uh, study whether you know, individuals that undergo this type of interventions have indeed some benefits because of the suppression of the SASP. Now, most people are not going to have access to a hypobaric chamber. So you said that there were some pharmaceutical ways to kind of mimic the effects of low oxygen without actually depriving the body of oxygen. Is that right? Yes, yes. But also, if I can take us also a step back here and mention that it is true that, you know, some of these equipment to expose yourself to either hyper or hyperbaric uh, conditions are not, uh, you know, easily available. It is also possible that there are some connections with the way we breathe, indeed. 
So there have been a lot of studies about briefing, and now there is uh, a lot of interest about you know briefing techniques and trying to expose ourselves to different type of uh, briefing techniques during the day because they might have advantages. And there might be connection with these sort of like hyperoxic uh, waves that might be beneficial because indeed they suppress certain mechanisms such as the mTOR activity, which are involved in developing SASP and detrimental function of senescence. So you were recently awarded an impetus grant to pursue the relationship between hypoxia and senescence. And our listeners will remember we had Martin Bork Jensen, founder of the impetus grant program, on the show last year. And the idea is these are lean mean grants with rapid review to provide funding for scientists to start working on what they consider the most important problems in aging biology without delay. So in light of that, where are you going next with this research? Of course, what we are trying to do first is to uh, have a very comprehensive uh, longevity study in mice, at least, in order to prove that uh, by reducing the SASP uh, because of uh, intermittent exposure to hypoxia, we can uh, extend uh, at least health span. Actually, that's the purpose, right? To extend health span and potentially also lifespan. But of course, the health span would be the main readout of our uh, study. On the side, but it's not really just on the side, but it's actually another uh, small study we've done in the past and others have done similar observations, which suggests that when you expose stem cells to intermittent hypoxic conditions, you extend their longevity. So we also want to make this study of stem cell longevity in mice and in mouse tissues because we think that might be another mechanism by which we can improve health, which is maintaining the stem cell pool because we retard the aging of these stem cells. Oh, that's really cool. So when you talk about extending health span, are there specific diseases that you feel like, or diseases of aging, that the knowledge that you're getting from these studies might help us to treat? It is important to point out that uh, our study is in mice. So mice, normally, if you go for age-related diseases that they develop naturally, it's quite different from what humans develop naturally. So unless you go for specific disease models in mice, and then you can tailor the, the specific disease, the spectrum of diseases that mice develop naturally with age is quite different from the one that human. So it's a little bit more difficult to study that. But what you can study in mice is for sure the general aging and frailty that seems to be quite similar to what humans do. So instead of focusing on you know, one specific disease that would happen naturally with age in mice, we prefer... To have, uh, we have developed a quite comprehensive and complex, uh, what we call the three-module system, to study, indeed, how the mouse age in general. So a complex uh, number of parameters that are categorized, indeed, in these three modules would reflect the aging at the organismal level of the animal without focusing on specific diseases. Well, I want to talk about a specific disease connection that you've written about. Recently, you published what I thought was a fascinating and thoughtful review about the idea that senescence might make COVID-19 more severe in the elderly. COVID is so much more lethal in older people that some scholars have referred to it as a disease of aging. How might senescence drive COVID severity? Yeah, there are actually many levels at which uh, senescence could drive. Uh, and uh, it was a, a fun exercise to do this uh, during the first uh, lockdown <laughs> because we knew, I mean, first of all, we didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> And second, it was also, uh, and I had to give something to do to my uh, PhD students, but also it was interesting because we have really few data 
on how you know COVID developed. But we made some predictions that actually turned to be true that senescence can contribute to COVID severity at different levels. So on one side, of course, this hypersecretory phenotype that senescence cells have might exaggerate the cytokine storm that we think might be in the acute response to the viral infection, a very important driver of the severity, right? So the highest cytokine storm you have, so this, all these complex hanging out of cytokines, chemokines, and other pro-inflammatory factors in your blood might become very detrimental for how you react to the viral infection. And then it might cause, of course, acute issues. And this will be the first level. But on the second level, we are also thinking that uh, senescence cells might be part of the long COVID effect, because what we think is that viruses can also prematurely induce cells to enter senescence. And while young organisms might be able to eliminate these senescence cells efficiently, in older organisms, including humans, these senescence cells might actually accumulate and persist for a longer period of time. And they might start to cause additional issues, for example, tissue damage, which can be associated with the long COVID effects and side effects that we are now starting to notice in people that experience the infection. Oh, wow. And are there any ramifications for vaccine efficacy? Well, that's another good point, because, of course, we also think that senescence might be part of the low vaccination efficacy that we observe in older individuals. So the idea would be that if I can eliminate senescence cells prior to vaccination, this might actually benefit the individual because it would make the vaccination more effective. What, in your opinion, is the right experiment or clinical study that should be done to test these ideas and really bring this knowledge into the clinic? Actually, there are already some studies. I mean, there are two uh, prominent uh, senescence groups that are uh, now using senolytics in the clinic for uh, COVID-19 patients. One is the, the Mayo Clinic and University of Minnesota. So uh, Jim Kirkland, uh, Laura Niederhofer, and, uh, and Paul Robbins, which are doing studies with Fisetin, which is uh, considered one of the most interesting senolytics at the moment, indeed in populations that are at risk of developing severe uh, COVID-19. So they have a clinical trial ongoing where they treat patients that are infected so not prior to the infection, because you cannot predict when the patients will be infected, of course. But uh, patients after the infection, they're trying to see whether this could indeed lower the severity of the disease after they get infected. And another important group that is now uh, moving towards using it is then proving that senescence is very important for COVID-19 in humans is uh, the group of Clement Schmidt uh, in Linz in Austria, which uh, has used a different senolytic in preclinical models to show similar effects, whereas uh, after the infection, when you eliminate senescent cells, you actually have a less severe COVID-19 progression afterwards. One thing that I think is really cool about that is that BioAge has an immune aging drug in phase two trials for COVID. There's no direct senescence connection. The drug works by inhibiting a signaling pathway that weakens immunity and drives inflammation as we get older. But it's exciting to think that drugs like the ones you're talking about, which are targeting senescent cells, could be used synergistically with a drug like ours to help older people fight off infectious diseases that disproportionately harm the elderly, like COVID, but also influenza, pneumonia. And one can imagine a future in which we're targeting senescence and immune aging in other ways to really help older people stay healthy and fight off infectious disease. Yes, if I can uh, add on these two points, the first one is that indeed, I think that thanks to COVID, we're also learning 
and maybe convincing <laughs> some people that uh, modulation of the immune system might be a uh, key for dealing with uh, viral infections, being indeed COVID or many other type of viral infections. But the second point I think that you mentioned, and it's a very important one, is that there are synergies in targeting different hallmarks of aging, which should be explored more and more. And uh, COVID can be one way because now there is more interest in finding therapeutics against COVID. Of course, there's been a lot of money around. But in general, I think that that's the direction that we need to take, trying to combine and synergize approaches, because there is no magic bullet so far that we have found, but just because we haven't probably combined the right interventions at the right moment in the right context yet. Speaking more generally about how knowledge of senescence could be applied to the clinic, you're a co-founder of Clira Biotech, a company devoted to targeting cellular senescence to extend health span. How are things going? Well, things are going well. Uh, we are uh, now expanding a little bit uh, on our uh, horizon of uh, moving to clinical trials with the compound that Peter de Kaiser uh, discovered, this FOXO4 uh, DRI peptide. So it's one of the few exceptions in the senolytic world because it's a drug that was designed specifically and selectively to target senescent cells. So it's not a repurposed drug, but it's a drug that can uh, indeed target specifically senescent cells. And uh, of course, we are also willing to expand our horizons. At the moment, we have some uh, oncological indication that we are following with potentially clinical trials next year. But we are also trying to expand to more age-related diseases to indeed uh, try to uh, develop better and safer senolytic approaches that can have uh, anti-aging and anti-disease effect. I want to hear more about the oncological application. I know that you've written about the idea that senescent cells could drive some of the negative consequences of cancer chemotherapy and possibly even drive tumor relapse following therapy. Is that the direction in which you're thinking of taking this? Yes, it's one of them for sure. And also we know that there are some cells that start to be senescent. And indeed, we go back to the first burning question that you asked about the definition of senescence, which is a state of cell cycle arrest. However, we also have now many cases, and that was I was pointing to uh, at the beginning, where this concept of cell cycle arrest seems to be a little shaky, meaning that the cell seems to escape the state at some point. And in a cancer context, this is extremely worrisome because, of course, if you have a cancer cell that is temporarily arrested, but then escape the state, this cell might become, again, a tumor. It might, again, you know, start growing and form a tumor again. And pioneering studies from different labs have shown that these cells actually acquire even more detrimental and tumorigenic functions than the original cancer cells after they go through this process of senescence and escape from senescence. So, of course, the therapy could also be aiming at targeting these cells that are temporarily senescent, but then they don't disappear completely and they might or did contribute to cancer relapse. Oh, wow. So the way in which the cells become worse if they pass through this kind of temporary senescence does that relate to the hypersecretory phenotype of senescent cells? Yes, in part, because, for example, they might be able to now avoid immunosurveillance completely or to switch the immune response to a more immunosurveillance system. But also, these cells seem to have additional properties that are quite interesting. For example, work again from Clement Schmidt and also from Vasilis Gorgolis has shown that these cancer cells that escape the senescence arrest become also more stem-like and more aggressive in general. 
that's, of course, uh, a problem that we do not want to have. I see. So what's the first direction in which Clara is taking a drug into the clinic? What's the first indication? The first indication would be uh, indeed an oncological indication and probably colorectal cancer. Oh, wow. And do you have a timeline on that? Well, I mean, we are now in the phase of uh, raising a Series A funding. So uh, that should happen this year. And if they're successful, of course, next year, we want to uh, start to uh, plan the trial. Oh, fantastic. Well, certainly, I think I join our listeners in wishing you the best of luck with that funding round. And uh, I'd really like to hear about this drug getting into the clinic sooner rather than later. I think just one fun thing to mention is that Peter, who you mentioned, Peter de Kaiser, who discovered this compound, he was yet another Campisi Lab alumnus. We all worked together about uh, 12 years ago. I think we we're all in lab at the same time. Is that right? Yes, correct, correct. We all overlap at some point, and it was a really fun uh, environment and very uh, engaging and stimulating. It was an exciting time in the field. And actually, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you in particular on the show is that you joined the field at a time of real revolution, when it was becoming obvious that senescence was likely to be intimately involved in human aging, age-related disease. So I kind of wanted to get your perspective. I'm thinking back to yourself as a starting postdoc in the CAMPC lab and the time that's passed until now. How do you feel like the field has evolved over that 12-year period? And to put it another way, how are we looking at senescence differently than we did back then? What are the new questions that have arisen in that time? First of all, you are really... uh making me feel uh, aging. (laughs) 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 But yes, I mean, I think a lot changed. I mean, uh, when indeed I joined the field, I think that we still had a lot of doubts about the importance of senescence in vivo. We clearly could see this phenomenon in in a Petri dish, but we were not sure that this phenomenon was so clear and naturally happening in vivo. We didn't have models at the time. So uh, everything happened in the last decade, of course, where we started to have mouse models. We started to think, oh, maybe uh, we can also develop therapeutics. And uh, we, and of course, many others demonstrated that, yes, in essence, it's real. It happens in people. It happens in organism models. We can uh, target these cells. If you target them, they can have some uh, interesting uh, beneficial effect. But on the other side, we learned that there is a bright side of senescence, which goes beyond the idea of tumor suppression because of the cell cycle arrest. We found, you know, the tissue repair associated senescence, which was not known, you know, 12, 14 years ago. We found that senescence might be a program that is part of uh, embryogenesis. So uh, there are many different findings that now have to be put in the context also of evolution. Why we selected senescence? So, okay, it becomes detrimental, but of course, it has been selected because some beneficial function, of course, which are immunoregulation, tissue repair regulation, tissue structure, and many others that might be uh, positive. And now where are we going is that, well, can we now maybe think that there is no such thing as senescence in general, but there are subtypes of senescent cells, which might be called differently and might be part of completely different programs. So now we enter in the area of heterogeneity of senescence and how senescence should be probably now defined in various different ways and uh, start to uh, diversify, classify senescence depending on the context, uh, on the function, on the phenotype, and many other factors that can influence it. So uh, I think that, yeah, we are moving forward, but we have also rushed a lot in thinking that senescence is bad, develop interventions against senescence, 
but we have a lot to learn yet, and we still have the need to do a lot of basic biology to learn about this concept of heterogeneity. And as you said before, our understanding of that heterogeneity is going to heavily inform our strategies in the way we try to target senescent cells in clinical contexts. Yes, absolutely. We don't believe in these uh, pan-senescence therapeutics. We think that it might be a much better idea to trying to tailor and targeting specific subtypes of senescent cells. One sort of question that I like to ask as we get to the end of the interview is, what is your favorite experiment that you would like to see done that you're not doing yourself in your own lab? The experiments I would like to see done is to combine approaches that target different aspects of aging. And uh, with this, I mean that we would like to see the modulation of the different hallmarks of aging in the same context. For example, I would say senolytic intervention together with uh, cell reprogramming, together with uh, uh, nutrient sensing modulation. That's what I would like to see in one uh, study, which is something that cannot be done by a laboratory. Unfortunately, I would not have resources uh, in terms of like personal money and space to do all this myself. But I hope that, uh, for example, some of these new longevity companies that are uh, pulling in billions of dollars <laughs> would be able to start this approach. You're talking about a particular aging company that's bringing in billions of dollars, of course. Well, at the moment, there is only one, but, you know, maybe there will be more in the future. Hopefully. I think that's a fascinating idea. I mean, we have these individual interventions. It would be amazing to see what happens when we, you know, figure out all the non-redundant or like at least mostly orthogonal interventions and throw them all at the same organism and monitor how the hallmarks of aging progress in that organism. We have all these tools. What happens if we use them all at once? Yes, correct. And we can go also with uh, some sort of educated guess, right? Because, for example, we have now the TAME study with metformin. I know that you had uh, uh, near Barzilai on the show. Metformin probably is not a good combination with senolytics before, because metformin can suppress the SASP, so the hypersecretory phenotype. And perhaps a senescent cell without the pro-inflammatory phenotype becomes even more complicated to be recognized by the immune system. So maybe it can actually survive for a prolonged period of time because of that. So maybe that's not a good combination, but there are others. For example, giving a senolytic and then trying to give fresh stem cells or rejuvenating some cells in the body might be very, very interesting to study. I think that sounds fascinating. You've given us a ton to think about. Marco De Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure and uh, I hope to uh, see you soon. I hope so too, man. That'd be great. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.